We come to Luther tonight. Really, I kind of started this last year. Do y'all remember last year? And uh, I told you we'd come and we'd, we'd get into Luther. I'm going to, we'll do Luther tonight, and I've got a little bit more of Luther, and we'll get to Calvin, not Calvinism, we'll get to Calvin. Calvin was not as Calvinist, as most Calvinist I know today. Anyway, we'll get there, and we'll briefly maybe look at Knox and uh, the English Reformation Barry has covered uh, but comes under Henry VIII, kind of starts there. There's going to be Reformation there in England. I'll get us over to this country, and then we'll move on. So just a few more weeks in church history. Um, I know you have not enjoyed it near as much as I have enjoyed going through it. But then we're going to go, and as far as I know at this moment, I keep coming back to Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, kingdom concepts. What is the kingdom of God like? So we may be going there. I'm not sure. Job keeps dancing around in my head as well. Um, but um, we'll just see. Y'all pray the Lord give me direction on that. When you look back over the last 1,000 years, um, or really I'd back it up and say, if you get out of the New Testament, get beyond Paul. Paul is dead. Um, uh, Peter has been crucified. Paul has been beheaded. You get into that second century of, um, uh, of uh, church history from there until now. I thought this afternoon, I kind of sat down, I thought to myself, who are the five greatest people that have lived over the last 1,800 years? And I came up with my list, and uh, in that list, uh, happens to be perhaps the man who has had the greatest influence, certainly over Western civilization, but I would say worldwide, and it has to be Martin Luther. I don't know anybody else that has had greater influence uh, than this guy right here, this little German monk who was sent off to college to study to be a lawyer. That's what I was doing. I was studying law until Jesus Christ just tackled me and um, wrestled me to the ground and called me to the ministry, and I had, to, um, I had to surrender. Luther, you know, I shared with you, in the middle of a lightning storm, lightning hits the tree as he's walking by in the forest, and he falls to the ground, and he screams out, St. Anne, if you save me, I'll become a priest. Now, that's not the way to answer the call to ministry. But it's funny how God uses certain things uh, to get us where he wants us to be, and that's what happened to Luther. And Luther goes off. I think we kind of left him there. He goes off, and he is um, ordained a priest, and he gets up to do his first mass, and in the middle of that first mass, he freezes because it hits him all of a sudden what he is saying and who he is. And all he can think about is the tremendous sin in his life and the holiness of God. Now remember, this guy's doing this out of the memory that he was nearly struck by lightning. And he begins to think, this is God. He's after me, and he's going to zap me at any moment if I don't straighten up and become holy. And so Luther begins to think, I've got to make myself holy. I've got to make myself holy in order that God can save me and not 
hit me with a bolt of lightning and kill me. And so that's the way he begins to think about theology, is that I must earn my justification. I must earn salvation from God, and if I step out of line anyway, God's going to obliterate my, my life, and I'll spend hell, I'll spend eternity in hell. Now, that's his thought process. So he begins to do everything that he can. I told you that he would fast until he nearly would starve himself to death. I can't imagine that. But it broke Luther's health that affected his health for the rest of your life. And I remember I told you, diets will ruin you for the rest of your life. Uh, and so that was Luther. And Luther would go to bed at night, and he would uh, get in the bed, and he would take his cover off. And, of course, he lived in a monastery, these stone buildings with no, you know, they had no central heat and air. And uh, so it was, that was not good enough, so he gets on the floor, and he sleeps on the floor. And many a night they go in, and they find Luther covered with frost uh, to the point to where he is nearly dead of um, exposure. And so he goes to these extremes trying to earn his holiness, trying to earn salvation, trying to keep God from zapping his life. The other thing that he does is constant confession. He goes every day to the confessional to confess his sins. And he will stay in the confessional for three hours. Priests begin to run from him. When they see him coming, they run, they leave, because he will sit there for hour on hour talking about the sin in his life, confessing everything, and he's just been there 24 hours earlier. Well, there is a man in his life that makes a tremendous difference for him. It's funny how you can go back in your life and look and see that there were certain people at certain times that God used to do something profound in your life, and for Luther, the guy's name is Johann von Staupitz, S-T-A-U-P-I-T-Z, Staupitz, this guy right here, who really, a great PhD uh, would, um, on this guy would be fascinating because he, just listen to what he does with Luther. He loves Luther. He cares for Luther. He has great compassion for Luther. This guy grew up with the Prince of Saxony. Uh, that guy's name is Frederick. We know him as Le Elector Frederick of Saxony. He's kind of the governor of that German state of Saxony. He grew up with him. Uh, Frederick, of course, becomes the prince. This guy goes into the ministry, and because of his relationship with Frederick, this guy becomes the head bishop of Saxony. He is the, I think they call it, the uh, governing vicar of Saxony. And uh, he is an Augustinian monk like Luther is. And so he's over all of these monks that are there in Saxony. And he builds this relationship with Luther. And he comes to Luther and he says, Luther, listen, you need to understand, you don't need to see God is so cruel. You don't need to see God is so vengeful. You don't need to see that God is so mean that he's just waiting to take your life all the time. In fact, he tells Luther, you need to see Christ as your Savior. And so he begins to explain something. This guy is really fascinating to me for this reason. He begins to explain to Luther something in Scripture that I want you to see. 
I hope you've got a Bible because I want you to look with me at Mark chapter 1. Stolpitz tells Luther, he says, Luther, you need to understand something about the Latin Vulgate. Now, while you're turning in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, the Latin Vulgate uh, was what Jerome in the 5th century, is that right? Was he in the 5th century? What Jerome in the 5th century took the Hebrew and the Greek and he translated it all into the Latin. Good guy, you know, you can get, you know, it's worth something, I'm sure, uh, but there are parts of it that are just not translated real well. But that is the official text of the Roman Catholic Church, the Latin Vulgate. And Stolpitz tells Luther, he takes him to Mark chapter 1, and he says, Luther, you need to understand, this is not translated exactly like it should be. Now, if you're looking in Mark chapter 1, go to verse 15, where you read, Jesus begins to preach the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, if you have, that's the New American Standard. If you have the King James, there's only one word different in there, I believe, and that is repent ye and believe the gospel. Uh, two words, ye and end. Uh, repent ye and believe the gospel. The New American Standard says repent and believe in the gospel. Well, that's not what the Latin Vulgate says. The Vulgate says this. Now, let me read it the way it is. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Do penance and believe in the gospel. Now, what Jerome did was this. He translated the word in the Greek, metanoia, or metanoio. He translated that word as penance. Penance means do something. I do some kind of penance. I do some kind of work. The Greek word is the simple word repent. Repent. Repent, uh, change the direction you're going in. It, it's, it's the word off of which we get the word conversion. To convert means I'm walking this way, I convert, I stop, I turn around, and I go exactly the opposite way. It's the idea of repentance. Repentance is this. This is repentance. That's repentance. I am walking into sin, I turn, and I walk the other way. That's the word here in the Greek. And Jerome translates it as penance. So basically, the church grew up with this whole concept that there are things I've got to do in order to earn my forgiveness. That is exactly the opposite of the gospel. That is not the gospel. So just hang on. Let me calm down here for a minute. Um, Stolpitz tells him that. Then, then Stolpitz does this. This is the other fascinating thing about this guy. He takes him to Romans chapter 1, and he introduces Luther to these two verses that become, that, that when you think of Luther, you think of this, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel uh, of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, first uh, to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Um, 
For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. For in what? In the gospel. What he's just said, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And so stop it. I'm going to tell you, this guy was used of God to put this thought down in Luther's heart. Now, I think that's around, I think that's around 1508 because in 1510, they're going to send Luther to Rome. They send him to Rome because they just, they can't. This is from the movie. By the way, that is a great movie right there. I don't think you can find it in English anymore. It's all in German. So you need to brush up on your German if you're going to watch it. Um, Luther goes to Rome. They send him to Rome because they cannot, they're, they're just worn out with him. And so they send Luther to Rome and say, just get out of here, Luther. Go, go away. Give us a break for a little while because he's just constantly, uh, you know, being Luther. But when they tell Luther he's going to go to Rome, he gets excited. And Luther begins to think, oh, I can't believe I'm going to Rome. I'm going to, the, I'm going to where the Pope is. I'm going to where all the relics are. I'm going to go see the finger of St. Andrew. I'm going to go and see. They've got a piece of the cross uh, there. They've got a piece of the burning bush. Uh, they have one of the coins paid to Judas uh, to betray Christ. Uh, they have the chain. I could tell you, if you go to Rome with me, I love to run people into a church called um, uh, St. Peter's of the Chain because in there they have the chains that they claim Peter was um, bound up with when they put him down in the maritime prison. Uh, it's just right around. If you get to the top of the Spanish steps and you go to the right and down the hill, it's right there on your left. Um, a fascinating place. Luther thought, well, I'm going to go there, and most of all, I'm going to get to see, and I'm going to climb up. This, this is probably the shot of that. I'm going to climb the steps at St. John of the Lateran because the steps, here they are, the 28 steps there, now, I don't know if you can see this or not, uh, but they've got the steps covered, but you can, you can see it kind of looks like you see a, a piece of stone inside of that. Those are the steps they claim are from the praetorium where Pilate was when they brought Jesus to him, and supposedly those are the steps uh, that, the, that Pilate stood Jesus on before the crowd and said, behold the man. What do, you, what, do you, what do you want me to do? You want me to release this guy? You want Barabbas. And of course, they cried out, release Barabbas. And so they took those steps there. Now, the Roman church said this, that if you would get on each of those steps, if you would crawl up, and at each step, all 28, you would say, an our father. In other words, you would pray the prayer, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. On each of the 28 steps that when you got to the top, that someone would leave purgatory. And so Luther wanted to go there. And he goes there to do this for his grandfather. So he thinks as he gets there, now tradition has it. I don't want to get off into all of this because there are other scholars that say, no, this never happened. And uh, I, I believe it's Melanchthon who says it, that it did happen, that this is what Luther told him, is that when he got to the top of those steps, all of a sudden the words of Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 
what Stolpitz had said to him, all of a sudden it came to light and he understood. He began to get this understanding that it's not what I do, it's what Jesus did. And so there is the story of that. Um, He is there, but he's so disappointed with Rome. He gets to Rome, and in Rome, Luther, he's anxious to go and attend a mass. Well, because you attend a mass, surely I'm going to be drawn closer to the Lord, and here I am in Rome. And as he goes in, he discovers that the priests are rushing through it. He knows Latin, and so he hears the priest, and they are fumbling through it, and they're leaving out parts of it because they want to get, for just example, I'm going to take up the offering tonight. We're going to get you all out because i got another crowd out there. I want in, and I'm going to take up the offering with them. So he begins to rush them through, or the priests are rushing the people through, and he sees this. And then through the day, he notices that the priests are the ones. You don't get to drink the wine. You just get the wafer. The, the priest drinks the wine. Does anybody know why? Because... They are the dispensers of grace. Of grace, They drink the wine, and then you come to them, and they dispense grace to you. <laughs> show, show me that. Where, where's that? Find that right there for me. Well, anyway, he notices that the priests become drunk. <laughs> and they're drinking the wine, and they're drunk, and then he notices, horror of horrors, and sad as it can be, that at night they're taking prostitutes back to their residences. And Luther is just, he's just totally confused with all this. And so his time in Rome is over, and he goes back to Saxony. And when he gets back there, Stolpitz takes him and says, listen, um, you, you have, you're right at the point to where we're going to confer your doctorate on you. I'm sending you down to this little town called Wittenberg, and there you're going to become the professor of biblical theology. And so Luther goes off to Wittenberg where he spends the rest of his life, and there he begins to teach. And he teaches the book of Galatians, and he teaches the book of Hebrews, and he teaches through the Psalms, and then he teaches through Romans. And all this time, this this event that happened to him in Rome is percolating, and he's thinking about it. And it's working on him. And I want you to listen to what he says. Day and night I tried to meditate on the significance of the words, the righteousness of God is revealed. It is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Then finally God had mercy on me and a light came on. And I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that gift of God by which a righteous man lives, namely by faith. The merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now I felt as though I had been reborn. Listen to Luther. Listen to this Lutheran. It's as if I had been reborn. That's as Baptist as you can get. At his heart, he was Baptist. He just didn't know better. He says, it is though I had been reborn altogether and had entered through open gates into paradise. That's his salvation experience. That happens in some moment in his life. After all that, while he's teaching, while he's thinking through all of this, it just begins to unfold for him 
that this is what has happened, that Jesus Christ died for him. Jesus Christ did the work. He goes on to say, I came to realize it's not what I do. It's what Jesus Christ did. And God gives me that free gift and makes me righteous because of the cross of Calvary in the empty tomb. He said, I've come to understand that being righteous is something that God declares me. God declares you righteous. That's justification. Jesus does the work, and you are declared just because of the work of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Now, you go through, and the Lord works out the process of sanctification. But now listen to me. Luther had this thing all wrong, and a lot of people get this all wrong. Justification is not a process. You are made righteous. You are declared righteous. Now, some of you here may be struggling with this. Some of you here may be like Luther. You may be, in your life, you may be just struggling over sin. You may be dealing with with guilt. You may may have a conscience that is constantly uh, bearing down on you, and you think to yourself, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? What do I have to do? The good news, the gospel is this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the good news that you don't have to do any work. Jesus Christ has done that work for you. Now, you say, when I preach, why do you keep going over this? Because you would be surprised how many Baptists I have come to me confused on this. Christ did everything for you on the cross. There is, by the way, there is nothing you can do. There is nothing you can do to gain or move along or enhance your salvation. Your, listen, if you're saved, your salvation can't be enhanced. Now, you come to the process of, of sanctification, what do I do? Then I begin in my life to yield myself to what the Holy Spirit and the Word of God is doing in my life, there are things that I'm going to begin to set aside. There are things that I'm going to begin I'm not going to do. There there are things that I no longer want to do. There are things that I'm no longer drawn to. Now, yes, sin still appeals to me, but listen, I am slowly, day by day, the Lord is sanctifying me And what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 is this, is that I am to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is, I am to look a little more and a little more and a little more like Jesus all the time. That's the process of sanctification. He's cleaning me up and straightening me up and straightening me out. And you you say, well, when does that process of sanctification begin? When do I get to the point of glorification? Well, not in this life, you're not. You'll be glorified when you see him. But as long as you're living and breathing, he's working on making you more like Jesus. Do y'all see that? You, You got that right there? Okay, well, that's what Luther's doing. That's what's going on with him. Luther comes back, he's teaching And now he's got this renewed excitement in his life, and he begins to teach this to his students. 
He's teaching this literally to Roman Catholics. He is in a Catholic university. He's teaching this to the next group of priests and preachers that are coming out of there, and you can begin to see here's the change in Luther. Uh, You look back at his notes in Romans. You begin to look back at some of those things, and they say you can begin to see where Luther makes this shift, and he begins to talk about the very fact that it's not what we do, but it's what Christ has done. Well, now there's Luther. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, back down in Rome, you got this guy, Leo X, who is Pope. Leo X, there he is, right there. And Leo is is, uh, wanting to leave a legacy, and the legacy he wants to leave is this. He wants to finish St. Peter's Basilica. Now, let me, by the way, and somebody, I'm surprised somebody hadn't already asked me, what's the difference between a cathedral and a basilica? It's St. Peter's Basilica. It's not really St. Peter's Cathedral. Sometimes you'll hear it said that way. It's St. John of the Lateran. St. John's is the cathedral. That's the seat of the bishop. The cathedral is the seat of the bishop. And we just moved from uh, Jacksonville, and we used to go down to St. Augustine. St. Augustine is a very Catholic city, uh, because the Spanish founded it, built the first city in America there, St. Augustine, and uh, they have a cathedral there. Now, it's not like one of these great big, you know, uh, cathedrals in Europe, but it is a cathedral because it is the seat of the Bishop of North Florida. A basilica is a church. It may be big, it may be elegant, it may be fancy, it may not be, but the cathedral is the seat of the bishop, and the basilica is, is a church. It has a priest, but it doesn't have a bishop. So he wants to finish St. Peter. By the way, I'm saying all that to say this, that the pope to this day is the bishop at St. John's of the Lateran. Although he lives and he does whatever a pope does down at St. Peter's Basilica. So he wanted to finish St. Uh, uh, he wanted to finish the Vatican. He wanted to finish um, St. Peter's um, Basilica. It was not finished, but it was going to take lots of money to do it. Uh, Lots and lots of money. Have you ever seen that place? Not being political, it has a wall around it. (laughs) You ain't just going to get in there. (laughs) Uh, it, It is opulent. It's the most... I've been to a lot of places in my life. I've been everywhere from the heart of China to 96 South Carolina. Um, I have never seen anything like what you see when you walk into the Vatican. It is unbelievable. Don't ever say we're opulent at this church. Um, You come with me to Rome and I'll show you what opulence is. Uh, it, it defies descript- the artwork in there alone. They've got artwork in there. Nobody can put a price on. You, you don't know how, you, you, I don't know how you would price it. Anyway, this guy wants to finish that, but it's going to take lots of money. And at this time, Jerry Falwell had not been born yet. <laughs> now, I can say that because Dr. Falwell was a very close friend. He was so good to my family, and I loved him dearly. Uh, but when he died, it fulfills Scripture, the beggar died. Um, if y'all remember that from the Gospels. And I say that because Jerry Falwell said that. Uh, I mean, Jerry uh, Vine said that to Falwell in a meeting one night. 
uh, he needed somebody to raise money. And he needed somebody that could really raise money, and there was one guy that could do it. His name was Johann Tetzel. Johann Tetzel was a priest, and if there was one thing that guy could do, he could raise money. And that pope gets Tetzel to raise money to finish out St. Peter's so that his legacy would be he was the pope that built St. Peter's, the Vatican. Now, let me talk to you about that because what you're going to hear and what you have heard and what you do know about are the indulgences. Uh, What does that mean? What were indulgences? And what was it that Tetzel did with indulgences? When I listen to me carefully, and I'll explain it to you because the Roman church said this. When you sin, for example, let's say uh, you went out and you stole a loaf of bread and some bologna and a gallon of milk, and you got caught. And they threw you in jail, and in a few days you got out of jail. Uh, A good Catholic would have to go, and you would have to go to the church to confess your sin. Uh, And the Catholic church said, okay, you have sinned against God, and you're going to have to satisfy God. But you have also sinned against the church, and you're going to have to satisfy the church. So in other words, they would say to you, (laughs) when you sinned, it's not that I go before the Lord and I just confess and repent of my sin, uh, and he forgives me, but that I've got to do something for his forgiveness. So I have to do something to get God's forgiveness on the one hand, and then on the other hand, I have sinned against the church. I've got to do something for the church. So what I would do for God is that I would go and I would confess my sin. That's why I would go to confession. I'd go in, I'd confess my sin, and the priest would say, well, you stole a loaf of bread and some bologna and some milk. I know, I understand, your family was hungry, you didn't have any money, but you're going to need to go down to the altar and down there, I want you to do 12 Hail Marys, you know, Hail Mary full of grace, you know, that whole thing. Do 12 of those and do six Our Fathers, Our Father which art in heaven, Ellie. Do six of those. Then that sets you right with God. But now you've got to get set right with the church. That's going to be a little bit more. We're not near as gracious as God is. Uh, that's going to probably cost you about a month's salary for you to get right with, this, with the church. Because stealing's really bad. That's a bad sin. What you did was bad. And uh, uh, you're going to need. And if you did not do that, If you did not pay the church, then they would just throw on a couple of hundred years you'd spend in purgatory. Oh, you're going to get to heaven, but it's going to be after a thousand years of your roasting down there in purgatory. Uh, You'll eventually get there, but you're going to go to, and if you don't pay us for your sins because you sinned against the church, uh, we're just going to start adding time onto your purgatory. Well, that's the situation. Now comes Tetzel, and Tetzel has this brilliant concept of this. Let's take that a step further. You can not only pay for your sins and have years taken off of purgatory for your life, but you can also pay for your loved one's sin and have their purgatory years reduced. So Tetzel started going into Germany. And in Germany, he'd go from town to town and from village to village and church to church, and Tetzel would get up, 
and he would look out at the people and he would say, do you have any money in your pocket? You got any money in your pocket? You got any money in your pocket? And people, of course, sit there like y'all, like, oh, you know, you know, the preacher's asking, do I have money in my pocket? You, do you have money in your pocket? And your mother is in purgatory? And you mean to tell me you're not going to come and buy years off of your sweet, saintly mother's time in purgatory? And what did people do? They rushed to the altar. I can't leave my mom in purgatory. I got here. Let's go home and break into the cookie jar and get what we got out and get mom out. You know, get mom out. Leave your mom in there, but let's get my mom out. And Tetzel was doing that. Now, Luther sees all of this. Now, what had happened to Luther was this congregation. Listen to me. Luther had begun to study and search the Word of God. And Luther said, I don't see that stuff in here. I can't find that in here. And so this little professor of biblical theology, this German monk, begins to write down on a piece of paper all these things that he's got a problem with that I see in the church. And he walks down at night on October the 31st of 1517. And he nails it up on the door of the Wittenberg church. Well, it didn't take long for everybody to find out that Luther had put up these 95 protestations. That's where Protestant comes from, that Luther listed 95 protestations. So you have Protestants because we are constantly protesting something. And um, the church sends the biggest gun they've got, a guy by the name of Johann von Eck of Ingolstadt. Johann Eck of Ingolstadt. Doesn't he just look like he is full of joy? There he is, von Eck, right there. Um, Eck of Ingolstadt comes, and they have a debate. They set up a debate between this guy and Luther. And uh, it's like a presidential debate. Now listen, let me tell you something. This thing is going to get really way out of hand. It's almost like the president and Congress uh, is the only thing I know to tell you. It's like every day this thing gets ratcheted up another notch, another notch, another notch. Well, that's what's happening here. They debate for 18 days. A little monk and the, and the greatest theological mind of the day. And I'm sure he thought, I will go in and inside of 30 minutes, I will tie that little monk up in knots. 18 days. Until Eck finally, now listen to the great mind of Eck. Eck finally says to Luther, well, after 18 days, he's debated out and he says, well, if the Pope wants to do it, who are you to say he can't? And Luther's response is, he's not the authority. That's right. That's what everybody did there. They gasped. Eck looked at him and he said, what you say? Luther said, he's not the authority. This is the authority right here, the Word of God. X said, 
you sound like a Hussite. Now, does anybody remember Huss? My favorite, one of my favorite stories, a hundred years before, it was in 14, 14, 15, 14, 16, 14, 17, almost a hundred years exactly. They tied Huss up at the stake in Constance and they burned him. And as they were burning him, Huss means goose. Uh, in check, and Hus said, you can cook this goose, but in a hundred years, God will raise up a swan you can't fry. And a hundred years later, there he stands, that swan that God raised up. And Engelstadt said, you sound like Hus, that heretic we burned down at Constance. And Luther responded, ich bin ein Hussite. You better believe it, big boy. I'm a Hussite. I'm Huss. I believe what Huss believed because Huss believed this was the authority, not some man. Woo! Son, listen, that's history. Isn't that good stuff? That's just good stuff right there. So Eck goes back. He says, okay, I'm going to take this back to the Pope. So he goes back. What time is it? He goes back to Rome to share with the Pope what what had happened there, you're not going to believe this, what this guy does. And in the meantime, Luther begins to write. And he writes a pamphlet to all the German nobility. And the title of the, of the, um, of the pamphlet is, um, what is the title of that first pamphlet? Well, I don't have it down there. I forget the name of it. Anyway, he writes a pamphlet to the nobility of Germany saying, I can't find in the Word of God anything about purgatory. You just go look for yourself. I can't find it in there. I can't find anything in there about indulgences. I can't find anything in there about popes. He, he gets down to, I can't find anything in here about celibacy. Oh, my goodness. He says, I can't find it in there. He said, the apostles, in fact, Luther wrote and he said, I see that the apostles had wives. Even Peter had a wife. Well, they write a pamphlet to refute his pamphlet and they call it, there's a wild boar in the vineyard. In other words, they called Luther a pig and they said, there's a pig loose in the church. And so Luther writes a pamphlet back. And let me, why can I not remember that? Uh, he writes a pamphlet back, and that pamphlet is, let me get the name of that, if I've got it. Yes, how did I not remember that? The Babylonian captivity of the church. He compares the Roman Catholic church uh, to Babylon, and he says, they've captured all the Christians and taken them into Babylon. Now, that didn't make him happy. And let me tell you what he also did in that pamphlet was this. He began to question the mass. Now, if you have followed everything that I have said about the Roman mass, the whole of the church of Rome is built around the mass. They came to a point in the Roman church where they set aside the word of God and they, they built around the mass this magical idea that when the priest holds up the, bre the, the bread, it becomes the body of Christ. And when he holds up the cup, it becomes the blood of Christ. And so I'll give you the body of Christ, 
but the forgiveness is in the blood. The priest drinks it so that salvation comes only through the church. Now, is everybody clear on that, on how, on how, they, on how that happens? Because that's what most people have a lot of questions. But the whole of the Roman church is built around this mass, and the whole of salvation in the Roman church is in that mass, dispensed by the church to whomever they want to give it to. They determine who will be saved and who won't be saved. Well, and I went through all of that weeks and weeks and weeks ago. Well, he writes that. I can tell you uh, they're not happy with it. Now, here's the thing. With Luther, Luther doesn't come to where we are as Baptists. That's transubstantiation. Luther says the presence of Christ is in the bread and in the wine. That's consubstantiation. We as Baptists believe that it is only symbolic. It is a symbol. It's a picture of the bread, of the body, and the blood of Jesus Christ. So Luther doesn't get that far. Now, I've given you Luther... I've given you what's going on back down at the ranch, uh, down in Rome. Now, what's going on politically? you got four powerful men that are ruling in Europe. Charles V, if you go by Debbie's office, she has a tapestry with Charles V on it. He's Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire, and he is Charles I, Carlos I of Spain. Man has unbelievable power. You have him, you have Francis I of, um, of France, you have Henry VIII, and he's just, you know, cutting the heads off of one wife after the other, you know. And then you have got um, Suleiman the Magnificent of the Ottoman Empire. Those four big, powerful men ruling right then while Luther is doing all this over here in the church. Woo! Good stuff. I'm going to stop right there.